All right. Hello, Internet friends. Uh, welcome to Love-Hate Relationship, an opinionated podcast by opinionated people. I'm Andy Bowell. And I'm Alex Ruiz, and we're here to brighten your day, anger your soul, and tell you how to live your life, in that order. All right, and uh, this is this is going to be a new podcast going out, and as the title kind of suggests, um, what we like to talk about in this podcast is stuff that we love and stuff that we hate, and then we take uh, your relationship questions and do our best to give you some advice for that. That's right. Our segments are identical to our title. Yes. So uh, just moving forward with this uh, so that everyone understands, each session, each podcast, Andy and I will take turns choosing something we love that we want to do a deep dive into uh, and then something we hate. And then together we will take your relationship question and that could be a romantic relationship, a work relationship, a family relationship, professional relationship, a relationship with the guy who stands outside of your apartment building and throws things <laughs> as you're walking in, whatever kind of relationship you're having an issue with. We want those questions. We want to speak to you about it. We want to know what's going on with your life and we want to help you with it. Absolutely. Um, so, with no further ado, do you want to start diving into uh, our topics for this week, Alex? Sure, Andy. So, uh, I understand that you have brought uh, the love for our first session. So, uh, if you will, go ahead and uh, let the people know what we're going to be talking about, and we'll see if we can't get a little bit of a discussion going. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, this week I wanted to start us off by talking about uh, someone that is very near and dear to my heart. This man is um, unobjectively my favorite comedian of all time. Okay. Um, this person I, I might not be the greatest comic of all time in any sort of uh, list format or anything, but this isn't about who is the greatest comic of all time. This is about who I love, and I love Sam Kinison. <laughs> I, I, I can't do the Sam Kinison scream. Not I can't time, either. I, I so wish I could. Um, okay, so for those of you that don't know, Sam Kinison was a comic from the 80s um, who has a, a, a hateful, vitriolic, uh, angry-with-the-world comic style that I just eat up. I, I legitimately cannot listen to more than 30 seconds of this guy without just busting a gut laughing. Mm -hmm. um, he is so funny in his hate and so so just refreshing as someone who didn't care about making the audience like them and in fact probably was a little more interested in making sure the audience hated him. Mm. Sam Kinison was born in Washington in 1953 and grew up in a very religious household, was like the third child out of six or something like that. And uh, for for much of his young life and his first career, in fact, as it was, he was a preacher. He was a very mm. religious kid from a very religious upbringing and uh, made his way kind of through the Bible Belt as sort of a traveling um, preacher wherever he could. 
And we're, when, I, when I say preacher, I mean literally revivalist, screaming about the fires of hell um, kind of guy. How appropriate. Yeah, it, absolutely. So he, he's going through trying to be a preacher, and um, he gets married to this lovely young lady, uh, and the marriage falls apart for, for whatever reason. And when, when Sam Kinison's marriage falls, fell apart, something snapped in his head, something broke and a switch was flipped and he literally just did a 180 and he abandoned preaching as a profession and instead went to stand up comedy mm-hmm. and like his you stand, do. Yeah, yeah, like, like you do, you know, you, you fall out of faith and you just figure, okay, I'm going to, uh, I'm, I'm going to shovel my way down and go through the other side. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so Kinnison um, started doing stand-up comedy in Texas, and I mean, it's it's so crazy that this guy went. F- maybe it's not so crazy. Maybe it's actually appropriate that this guy went from a religious background where he was not so much praising God as he was making people scared of hell to go to this misogynistic hate my my black little heart explodes styling and he uh, he managed to get his break because uh, somehow uh, Rodney Dangerfield discovered him and so he gets his big break in 1984 and this was from a time when comics wore suits and you know you wear a suit and tie and you get up and you know maybe like you 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 do the Jerry Seinfeld bit and you talk about airline food what's the deal with airplane peanuts <laughs> and this guy gets up there and starts screaming about his dick and like hoping somebody hoping his ex-wife gets hit by a gas truck and and tastes blood before she dies and for context i mean this was the period of time when you know, Carlin was past his his straight lace days, and the yep. fact that guys like him and Richard Pryor would go up there and swear made them giant figures of the counterculture in this period of time. And and they'd been doing that shtick for a few years, but then Kinnison actually got a lot of, if I remember correctly, a lot of mainstream appeal in that kind of breakthrough period. Yeah, that's definitely where he he kind of got discovered and he, the guy has like three albums that he was able to produce before he died. Spoiler alert, the man had like an 8-year-long career before he died and we'll get into that later. Mm-hmm. But in like his first album and his first TV special, he he's this clean, well-cut, he he's wearing a nice like tweed jacket and he really really subverted what everyone else was doing and taking this, I look like you, I sound like you for the first five minutes of my bit. And then just like my head cracks open and the devil starts screaming. You know, you talk about Carlin and Pryor swearing and then you, you listen to five minutes of Kinnison and it's enough to make like George Carlin blush. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this guy was like the reason I, I love him so much is because he was doing all of this so early and you you, you want to talk about the candle that burns half as long, burns twice as bright. That's Sam Kinison. He Mm -hmm. didn't have 
the 35 years that Carlin had. He didn't have uh, 25 years that Bill Hicks had. Uh, This guy did more in eight years and just hit the ground running and exploded uh, in terms of his fame and popularity. And I just, I I love that. I think there's something so special and unique and something that I have not seen anybody even come close to imitating since. No one has been able to just start screaming their pain away in a manner that makes you cry with, with uh, tears of laughter like Sam Kinison ever has. Sure. So, um, when you presented the idea to me that you were going to do Kinnison, something that I was really interested in is the idea of he was super influential and there were a lot of people who seemed to bite off bits of his style, but no one really did it quite like him. And when I think of like comedians working today or in the last, you know, 15 years who made that, who made screaming who made aggression of that kind part of their act. Like, the only person who really comes even close, and it's really disingenuous to really compare them because all they really have is the fact that they yell, would be Lewis Black. Sure, yeah. But Black was... Black didn't talk about personal pain the way that Kinnison did. Right, where where Lewis Black would be screaming at George W. Bush or you know, or Bill Clinton even Bill Clinton even yeah like whoever was the political power of the time I mean Kinnison like sits there and and talks about um <laughs> the cheating on his wife and and the the joke about cheating on his wife is about how he was a, an absolute scumbag for years and years and years and cheated on her for a while and then finally one day uh you know you know comes clean and she says she forgives him and and he believes her and then she puts a loaded 38 in his luggage and sends him to the airport and, and <laughs> Yeah, yeah, she forgave me. She forgave me the fucking car! Ah! Ah! Like, I can't do the scream justice, but, like, that's what he would do. Shit like that, and, like, he would start playing the piano and do this this, 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 this prelude about how this is a love song he wrote, and it's, it's a song about a special girl, and then the lyrics are... You fucking whore! You use me! You never love me! I can't even recount the joke without busting out. Oh man. No, it's so it's an interesting thing is that people point to Kinnison a lot uh in the there's that period of time when stand-up just became enormous like it has always kind of been around you know there's always been comics i'm watching marvelous miss Maisel right now Mm, and lenny bruce features prominently in there and like i love lenny bruce a lot of people might call bruce the you know the george carlin or the richard Pryor or the sam kinnison of their era but something about that period in the 80s like just just before seinfeld really took off as a sitcom where Everything was about stand-up comics. I, I think there was a VH1 special back when VH1 did documentaries, and they had sure. when stand-up ruled the world. And 
that that was that period of time. And I feel like Kinnison was such a deep part of that. Hicks was there as well. Uh, that's also that's also when a lot of those kind of eighty. I mean Cosby. Yeah. Cosby was in. Cosby was selling out stadiums. Steve Martin was selling out stadiums right. at that period of time. And Kinnison, it's funny because I have a little bit of a chicken-egg thing there. Was that the time that stand-up blew up because of people like Kinnison kind of changing the mold, really offsetting everything, or was it the other way around? Did, did that blow up? And that's the reason somebody like Kinnison, who was different, he was just notably different from a lot of the people, other people working at that time, that he could blow up like that. It, it is an interesting question. The way I look at it, I, I do actually have an answer. I do honestly think that it was the comics who changed the landscape so that they could start performing in these larger venues. And and Kinnison is such a fascinating example because the, the other thing that he did that was different is he he basically crafted this rock comic persona. And literally, rock star comic, because... He was hanging out with Motley Crue back then. Exactly. After he blew up, he was hanging out with Motley Crue and Billy Idol and Guns N' Roses. And he even, like, started to record his own, like, rock cover stuff. He's got, um... The the big one is Exactly, yeah. The big one is the cover of Wild Thing, which has all of these guys we've listed doing cameos. But it's Sam Kennison singing and playing the guitar. You know, his, uh... I think his last televised special before his death he he comes out looking like a a the, this the short little toad dressed in glam rock attire with these these two chicks in in fishnets and high heels on his arms and he he's got a a, a v-neck around his neck and yeah. uh you know spent half of that comedy show doing the rock thing. And, and, and so that's literally, it was, it was an elite, an arena rock venue. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I personally believe that it's the comics were able to kind of exert their will and yeah. make these things happen by being so big. You know, it's yeah. funny. You mentioned Lenny Bruce. I, I literally have in my notes that he is maybe the one person who was doing this, this 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 hate comedy before Kinnison and was probably one of the few people you could point to and say that was a uh, that was a, a a mentor or comparable. Sure, I mean I look at it and from that era I always so I always gravitated more towards Bill Hicks. Um, sure, there was always because Hicks would touch on what Hicks did was he would do the political and make it personal. Uh-huh. So Hicks would talk about, you know, the troubled racism of the American South and then tie it into the ignorant assholes that he grew up with. Kinnison was in my, like, I love Kinnison, but to me, Kinnison was what Andrew Dice Clay wanted to be. <laughs> Kinnison, yeah, he was, because Andrew Dice Clay was a complete character. Yeah. 100%. Uh the hickory dickory docs, whatever it ends with him fucking someone's mother. That's <laughs> whereas whereas Kinnison actually fucked the mother. Yeah, uh, yeah. So Kinnison, for to me, Kinnison was really more akin to 
to kind of more a Guns N' Roses atmosphere. He was yeah. kind of an Axl Rose type of character because he dealt with all this personal pain, all this personal turmoil, the substance abuse, the substance abuse jokes. Um, I re- like I remember, I remember some Kinnison bit where he's like, oh, I go to these parties now and there's people in the corner and they're doing these little like inch lines. Like, oh, we're doing coke. <laughs> and then he shows up and they're like, it's Kinnison. Oh, this one's yours, man. And they just do a, he just runs a coke line across the stage. Right. <laughs> Which is hilarious, but yeah, I mean, he's very much in that kind of a vein to me, which, I don't know, what, it it kind of becomes a Biggie Tupac thing, like, or specifically a Biggie type thing, like, what would he have become had he stuck around? That is such a fascinating question, really, because I mean... Like you, you go through what the guy actually did while he was around. He he has like three comedy albums that were produced while he was alive. He was in uh, Rodney Dangerfield's Back to School movie. That's like his mm-hmm. only film credit. He yeah. was in. Um, he he played Al Bundy's guardian angel in uh, <laughs> of Married with Children. I remember that. One. I've forgotten that one. Right, right. He so the guy has less. Um, credits that i can then i can count on two hands but he was still such an influential comic and it it really is interesting i i don't know in a world where he lived as long as carlin did what that would have done to him and what he would have done to the entertainment industry as a whole that's that's a really fascinating what if yeah well because he'd either he'd either become motley Crue where he's going around playing the hits and Vince Neil's gotten more plastic surgery than most that <laughs> then share at this point. Yeah. Um, although I don't know, I could see him kind of going the Bobcat Goldthwait route where there was a point where Bobcat kind of was like, I can't do the funny voice anymore. Let me, let me go write some movies, direct some movies, get a couple of minor acting parts where they're not asking me to do that stupid voice. Right. I'm wondering if I'm wondering if there is an inside the actor studio with Sam Kinison where he's talking about doing some kind of high comedy indie movie, and he's just like, and people still want me to do that damn scream. <laughs> you know, I think about it, and 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 here's my guess: uh, he would have been Frank Reynolds in "It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia." He would have beaten out Danny DeVito for that part. Um, I, I oh my god, I would punch a baby to go to the alternate <laughs> universe where that's true, right? <laughs> That's amazing and gross, but am- well, Kinnison was kind of gross. So, oh, Kinnison, like it, as much as I love him, he was very problematic. He was very gross. It was very much a, a. It, it was very much. It was the fall from grace thing. It was. I don't think I believe in a higher power anymore. So I'm going to do every last thing I can while I'm still here on this earth. Yeah, I mean, it's worth noting that. I mean, he did some. Mark Maron has a great story about how Kinnison pissed on him. Like, oh, I've never heard that. Either pissed on him or pissed on his bed. I can't remember. Something um, like that. It's If you YouTube it, he tells a story on, I think, the Joe Rogan podcast. But it is... But Maron kind of contextualizes it as, okay, this is the moment where, A, me and Sam's relationship fell apart, because they were friends. Uh, uh, but B, he kind of contextualizes it as... This is this is a man falling apart. This is a sure. man because because this was within I think a, a year or two of his death. Mm. So Marin's just like that's that's a sign of a man who's 
crying out for help. And like another thing they talked about on that was, you know, Kinnison fathered a baby with his best friend's wife and like I think didn't tell him about it mm. and just like didn't really apologize for it or seem sorry about it. That this is secondhand, but yeah. um yeah, like he had a lot of problematic elements. Yeah. Which I mean the art is wonderful. We can contextualize that, you know, maybe he wasn't the best person, but I mean I'm sad that he's gone. Like I remember watching him I didn't get to get to be a fan of his until he was out until after he died, but I I thought that he I, I am sad that more people don't talk about him from that period because I hear Hicks talked about all the time. Seinfeld never really went away, but you know, um you hear about Bill Hicks, who, who, funny enough, uh, came out of the same group of Texas comics as Sam Kennison. Yeah, um, I've got like, like he he really looked up to the guy. Yeah. Um, uh, you've got Bill Hicks. Andy Kaufman lives on through Jim Carrey mostly nowadays. George Carlin is timeless, and if you pay attention, Bo Burnham has been doing kind of a lot of the Carlin shtick. So Carlin is living on through Bo Burnham. Yeah, I can see that. And I mean, I, I don't know a black comic who doesn't talk about Richard Pryor. I don't. I don't know a lot of white comics who don't talk about Richard Pryor as an yeah. influence. And I mean, there, there was that there was that tremendous Quincy Jones interview where he talked about Marlon Brando having a sexual relationship with Richard Pryor, which is just the funniest. <laughs> the best part was when they followed up with Richard Pryor's widow, and they were like, "Yeah, of course they had sex. It was the '70s. If you do enough cocaine, you'll fuck a radiator and send it flowers in the morning." <laughs> Which is terrific. It's just it's just wonderful. But yeah, like Kinnison does not the only people I hear talk about Kinnison, honestly, and this sucks to say, are kind of the gross white dude comedians who inevitably seem to get in trouble for either sexual harassment or just being shitty. Other than Marin, who again talks about him as this was my friend. You know, Rogan talks about him on a pretty frequent basis, and Joe Rogan's problematic as shit. But I was about like, to say, I didn't even know that because I'm so not in. Uh, I'm, I'm so not paying attention to Rogan. Every time Rogan has like somebody I really love on his podcast, I'll look for like the highlights on YouTube. But like, I used to listen to his podcast, and now I'm officially just like, I can't, I can't take you anymore, dude. Like, you piss me off too much. So I want, I want to wrap up by telling uh, a story that I, I don't think I ever knew this. Um, I, I discovered it in my research, and it really affected me. And and that's the story of Sam Kinison's death. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, we we talked about it briefly towards the end he was really going off the rails i mean the man was doing a suitcase full of coke a week yeah um what what did officially kill him by the way like was it a heart failure or overdose? it was a car it was a car crash oh it, it, so so the here's the story of sam kinnison's death and i'm gonna kind of read it verbatim off of uh, you can find this off the wikipedia okay. um so uh, April 10th, 1992, uh, which it's so crazy for me thinking about anything in 1992. I'm an infant at this point. <laughs> I'm three. Okay. Yeah, Two and right. a half. All right. Okay. So, uh, Friday, April 10th, 1992, Sam Kinison, uh, is in his Pontiac Trans Am driving through LA and, uh, gets hit by a pickup truck of this 17 year old who was, uh, drunk driving. 
So he, he either gets T-boned in the intersection or it's a head-on collision. Okay. So so Kennison's in his little Pontiac and gets uh, hit head-on by a pickup truck. Um, his uh, there, There's some other people in the car, and there is a van full of Kennison's posse behind him. And the story as it's told is Kennison gets out of the car... And it doesn't seem like he has any actual injuries on him. He's 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 walking. He's, he's shaken up, of course, but it, it, it's not like he's bleeding from the ear or anything like that. Uh, his friends are freaking out and tell him to lie down, and he he lies down in the lap of his best friend, a guy named Carl Lebove. And as he's lying there in Carl Lebove's lap, he's looking around. And he kind of looks to an empty space where nobody is, and he starts saying, I don't want to die. I don't want to die. And uh, witnesses say it's like he was having a conversation with something, because he he says, I don't want to die. He waits. He gets a response in his head, and he goes, but why? Waits again. This one-sided conversation continues, and his last words were him going, okay, okay, okay. And people are saying the last one, like, 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 over the course of that sentence, Sam Kinison found peace and accepted death and dies in his friend's lap. Um, after the fact, people, uh, medical examiners, um, determined that he had internal injuries. Uh, he had a dislocated neck, a torn aorta, and uh, torn blood vessels in his heart. So, oh my! So he was bleeding out inside of himself. Yes, he was bleeding internally, and no one could tell. No one could. No one knew. Um, so horrible, traumatic yeah. internal injuries kills the guy in minutes, and there was really nothing anybody was going to do. What fascinates me is the concept of this man who had a religious background, but also spent the past. 15 years of his life raging and living for himself and uh, being a source of hedonistic selfishness uh, on this earth. In his final moments, he sees God? He sees, he sees death? He, he sees something. He has, in his final moments at his core, he has a, a deeply spiritual moment at, on, on his death. Mm. Um, and, and I personally find that chilling. It's, it's crazy to me, uh, and it's, it's really impactful. And it, it, it's interesting, um, you know, he was, uh, he was good enough friends with Ozzy Osbourne that Ozzy <laughs> commented on his death uh, okay. And and when he found out, Ozzy, Ozzy, Ozzy of Black Sabbath was saying, "Yeah, this is gonna piss a lot of people off. This is gonna like my fans aren't gonna be happy, but there's a higher power." And Sam Kinison was talking to God, and he is absolutely yeah. in heaven, uh, being the man's red right hand. <laughs> uh, well, you know, Ozzy's Ozzy's religious background. I mean, Oz, Ozzy is not an atheist. Ozzy is not a Satanist. Yeah. Um, we, we can get into, into that another episode. But, sure. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, it doesn't surprise me that that would be that response. And, you know, I, I don't know. I, I am not religious, but I hear that story and I go, you know what? Like, 
this was a man who, again, like the amount of pain and turmoil yeah. uh, that he suffered through, I just, whatever you think of him, you know, maybe he wasn't a good person, but if you, if you talk that way, if you live that way, if you suffer through all of those kinds of experiences, the idea that at his death, something, something occurred to give him peace. I am mad at that. No, no, absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so that is my my brief history report on uh, Sam Kennison, uh, yeah. and and I mean, yeah, he is he he is my favorite. There's there's Sam Kennison, and then there's Robin Williams. And that's like the short list of comedians I would do anything to have them come back and do a, a two-hour set. Um, you like them tragic, don't you? I really do. That says Aww. something about me. <laughs> yeah. No, I I get it, man. He's uh, he's not he's not hasn't been a favorite of mine for a very long time. But I really do appreciate you bringing him up because it's nice to sit and think about him for. A, I haven't thought about him in so long, yeah. and. Not really, not since I saw that Marin interview, and and even then I was like, wow, when was the last time I thought about Kinnison? Like, and I loved him when I was younger. So yeah. thank you, thank you for bringing yeah. that. My pleasure, um, man. Okay, so uh, I promise that we did not select this. I I did not select this hate just off of the fact that Sam Kinnison was kind of chubby. Uh, <laughs> but, um, oh, that's a terrible joke. Uh, I would say edit that out, but don't edit it out. Uh, no, I'm keeping it. So, uh, for my hate, uh, I wanted to, I wanted to keep it kind of broad. You, you know, you talked about a very specific individual that you are, that you love dearly, that you yeah. knew I was familiar with at the very least. Um, I wanted to go a little bit broader on my hate, uh, and, and broad hates tend to, tend to be fun, we've found, but, um, my topic is diets, the concept <laughs> of quote unquote diets, um, so let me open by asking you this. Andy, what is the craziest or most out there or dangerous sounding diet that you have ever seen someone follow or maybe heard of someone following? Um, sure. So I, I, I laughed when I saw this uh, in, <laughs> in, the, in the prompting, uh, the show notes we do. I laughed when I saw this because I actually have a, a hyper-specific answer to this question. Um, so I've done a lot of work uh, running around the backstage of Universal Studios for uh, my production job. And uh, it was this, this, this guy I met who I don't even remember the name of the guy, but he was a higher-up at Universal. Okay. And he told me secondhand about a buddy of his who, for the five years he knew this guy took diet supplements, drank diet mm. Coke and smoked cigarettes. And that was what he subsisted off of. So the fact that there's no actual food tells me like that, that strikes me as the most dangerous diet I've ever heard of. That is the worst. That is the second worst thing I've ever heard <laughs> as far as diets. Like it's, uh, the worst is, I, I do know that there's, oh god, this is actually kind of similarly in line, but I remember reading, a, there's a prominent diet that was done a lot, uh, especially in the early 2000s. Tobey Maguire used this to slim down for the first Spider-Man. Okay. 
Um, but it's a diet where you can have as much for 12 days, I think it is, you can have as much as you want of a concoction made out of maple syrup, lemon juice, and cayenne pepper. Hey. And you can have that and only that as much as you want for like 12 days. Jeez. Yeah. Um, obviously, that's a crash diet. Obviously, this person, I don't know how they survived. There, uh, there had to have been something more. I mean, I, I imagine there had to have been some kind of food. But the guy swears up and down that it was it was Diet Coke, uh, and anti-appetite pills, and like a pack a day. And that was what the dude did to stay I skinny. Mean, for- I mean, for years, uh, you'd hear the story, apparently Lemmy from Motorhead, Lemmy Kilmeister, subsisted on a diet of meat, Jack Daniels, cigarettes, and amphetamines. (laughs) For decades, he survived on that. Now, granted, at the end of his life, like, he took a turn very far down very quickly. Um, But yeah, that was apparently his diet forever. And I guess someone had studied, like, they actually, I think they actually studied some of his blood and found that he just had incredibly hardy DNA. Sure, um, sure. So those are all digressions, but lovely ones at that. Uh, so, Andy, the reason I wanted to talk about this is because, uh, as you know, and as probably some of our listeners may or may not be aware, probably not be, uh, I I wouldn't call myself a health nut or anything like that, but um, I do participate in uh, athletic stuff. Um, sure. I'm a, I'm a gym rat. Uh, I do a lot of weightlifting. I am a vegetarian, and I'm sure we will we will touch on that. Though I'm not a vegetarian for diet dietary reasons. But that's going to make a lot of what you say very interesting contextually. I feel like so I'm I'm very excited to get into this. Yeah, yeah. But um, so a lot of my focus when it comes to food and dietary everything is. Trying to maximize athletic performance. That's that's generally my focus. I I do care about health because um, obviously you know in most cases if you're if you're an athlete it does pay off to be healthy. Though uh, I there very well may be a future hate episode where I talk about uh, health attitudes of athletes because mm. in a lot of cases you're actually destroying yourself in pursuit of your athletics. But um, my point is that I've done a lot, I do a lot of reading and research, and I encounter a lot written about diets, about food, about food consumption, and inevitably in this research, weight loss comes up pretty commonly. Um, So does health, so does performance, but weight loss tends to be the focus. And what I've found is that anyone who has ever tried to lose weight or get healthy, and those two are not necessarily synonymous, um, no. but anyone who has ever tried to do anything of the kind with that will find ridiculous amounts of contradictory, bullshitty dieting advice. And I want to dive into some kind of specific diets and some of the things that are really wrong with the mentalities presented on them. Yeah, please. Um, so the first one I want to talk about is uh, kind of the du jour Atkins that style diet of the time, which is the ketogenic diet, mm-hmm. or keto. Keto, um, right. Yeah. Andy, I think you've done keto a little, right? I, I have done keto. Um, I did keto my last semester of college, and that was the time it worked. And I tried to do keto again uh, maybe eight or nine months ago at this point, 
and that was the time that did not work. Uh, but I, I'm most familiar with keto. We have some friends that have done keto pretty hardcore. Um, mm-hmm. So this is the one I, I personally, I think I can uh, converse the most about with you. Cool. So you say that it worked for a while and then it didn't work. What were your goals on it? Uh, my goals simply were to, I mean, I mean, the the overarching one was to lose weight, to lose to, to, to physically lose weight. And I will preface, I think the reason it worked in college, aside from that being the, the last shining moments of my growing metabolism, uh, I was also working out three times a week. Mm-hmm. Um, I was working out and I was doing keto and what I sort of equated it to in my head was the keto keeps me from gaining new weight. The working out helps me burn off the old weight. Uh, yeah. But really, I mean, I and, just, I wanted my tummy to be smaller. <laughs> and you know, it's funny because in a, in a short term basis, um, keto is actually not bad for that. Um, keto to sum it up very quickly is uh, a diet where you basically consume, I think it's 80% of your calories in fat, 15% in protein and 5% or less in carbohydrates. Uh, what that does is supposedly get your body to stop feeding off of carbs and burn fat primarily as a fuel source, which is, you know, great in theory, but it does lead to a lot of problems. Uh, for one thing, there's the quote-unquote keto flu, mm-hmm. where as you're adjusting to it, you just feel completely like shit. There is the fact that uh, on keto, people tend to lose a whole lot of water weight, yeah. which uh, I, I'm not going to speak to you specifically because one thing I want to emphasize throughout this is that any of these diets might work for anyone. A lot of it does depend on your genetics, your sex, your age, where you're starting from, etc. But a lot of people see very quick gains, of, quick losses on keto, and then it levels out very quickly. And a lot of that is because most of what they lost was water weight. And the biggest thing for me, against keto, is by depriving yourself of carbohydrates, sugars, I'm not saying those things should be eaten in excess, but you, your brain consumes the greatest amount of calories of any organ in your body. And most of those calories, most of what it burns is glucose, okay. which is sugar, which is yeah. gotten from carbohydrates. And if you are trying to do keto, if you are depriving your body of glucose to that degree you're starving it you're starving your brain of something that provides something like 60 percent of its energy it is that's uh, personally kind of terrifying to hear i I had no idea yeah now now there are stories of people who do well on it um there it shows some promising benefits to fighting diabetes if you are that's actually a lot of how it originated was as a means of combating diabetes. So if you are diabetic, that might be a worthwhile means. And, and we're not doctors, we don't pretend to be, but that might be a reasonable usage for it. There's some research suggesting it might possibly help prevent cancerous cell growth, but that's inconclusive. There's a guy out there who I advise anyone who's interested in keto, check out Dominic D'Agostino. Uh, he is a medical doctor. He's appeared on Tim Ferriss's podcast like a million times, but he's a big proponent of the ketogenic diet. Um... It's, it might be worth checking out there, but I, I advise everyone, if as, along with any of these diets that I'm about to talk about, it's not for everybody, and it's not sustainable, and in long term, it might not be healthy. Mm. Um, 
on the other side of the spectrum, the another one I wanted to talk about, which is funny because I am a vegetarian, veganism. Uh, a lot of people, especially in the circles I run in, because I'm a vegetarian for ethical reasons. Don't worry, I'm not preachy. I'm not going to sit here on this podcast <laughs> and be all like, everyone should go vegetarian. I don't give a shit what you do with yourself. I'm just talking about something I passionately hate. Sure. Um, so speaking about something I passionately hate, veganism. Um, so the problem with a lot of the vegan literature that goes out there is people talk about the health benefits of going vegan. And that's in many ways bullshit. Um, because, Andy, do you know what my two favorite vegan foods are? Oh, I'm sure I have no idea. <laughs> two favorite vegan foods in the world. Lay's potato chips and Oreos. Ah, okay, I see. Yes, yes, I do follow now. Veganism only requires you to not use any animal products. That does not mean you're not using a shitload of chemicals, a shitload of food dyes, a shitload of artificial ingredients. You can eat a completely vegan diet and eat food that has never been in the same room as a plant. Right. (laughs) Straight up. So most of the people, a lot of people who do switch to veganism might see some health benefits. And this is a trend you'll see across a lot of these diets. A lot of the time, that's really just because they are accidentally paying attention to what they're eating, which they might not have ever done before. Yeah, and I mean, I think I think especially right now, and I mean, you could say over the past decade, it's it's become such a trend. I think a lot of people go vegan maybe for the um, superficial reasons, so that they sure. can say they're vegan. And sure. if you're doing that, then you don't actually care about the diet in the first place. You just want to yeah. be able to say you're doing it. Yeah. Now, a great counterpoint. Um, I don't, Andy, I don't know how involved you are in following the personal lives of past presidents, <laughs> but uh, Bill Clinton very famously uh, went vegan and wrote a book about it. I like the stuff I eat. I like the vegetables, the fruits, the, the beans, the, the stuff I eat now I like. Uh, he went vegan because he had heart problems. And I remember, like, I was too... 1992 was Bill Clinton's election run, his first election run. Same year Sam Kinison died. I wonder if there's a correlation. There's no correlation. No. (laughs) Um, But but a big thing about him back then was, you know, how he was was this down-home country boy who would... He'd eat his pork and beans, and he'd eat his McDonald's Big Macs. And, you know... Bill Clinton was not in good shape. He went vegan for health reasons, and it did work out for him. Now, he went vegan. He also became a runner. He also had a personal nutritionist. He ate a shit ton of plants. Could he have done that with, say, like a Mediterranean diet where he maybe cuts down on the meat and just eats a whole lot more plants? Maybe. Probably. That's kind of my point here. Um, and, And... the through line here, and the reason why I fucking hate these diets, <laughs> is because they present themselves as the solution. Yeah, the end-all, um, be-all. Exactly. Like, I wanted to talk about paleo, which paleo, paleo and veganism are constantly portrayed as being at odds. And paleo is, of course, the quote-unquote caveman diet, um, sure. which is actually bullshit. But the whole point of it is actually pretty sound, which is don't eat any artificial stuff. You know, don't eat, don't eat, eat meat, fish, eggs, 
plants. No cheese, right? That's the big thing. Yeah, there's paleo plus dairy, which is a modification, which whatever. I mean, uh, dairy is its own issue. Some people can die. Most people are actually pretty lactose intolerant. Um, Right, right. So, like, me, if I... if I've sat down, eaten an entire pizza, and felt gross because of the dairy. (laughs) Um, I I mean, I consume dairy. I consume cheese. I try not to do it too much. uh, But I... The point of it is, like, there, sure, there are some cultures that can, or some some people whose bodies can handle that kind of dairy, some people can't. I'll tell you, in weightlifting circles, a stupidly popular thing for people trying to gain weight is uh, go mad. Gallon of milk a day. Ew. Gross. Right? <laughs> <laughs> That's the perfect response to it. I've, I've, I've heard of carb loading, but that is something entirely different. <laughs> you're gonna eat lightning, and you're gonna drop thunder. Yeah. And, I mean, that's like 3,000 calories, probably, uh, somewhere in the ballpark of like 3,000 calories. Um, plenty of protein, carbohydrates. It's arguably good stuff for you. Um the science is kind of hit or miss on the long-term good that will do you, and obviously some people throw up on that much dairy, but the point that I'm trying to get at is... Oh, um, the thing with paleo is, you know, our gut biomes have changed a lot since the period that the paleo diet was arguably supposed to work for. Sure. Also, it says a lot about to get slightly political, I think it says quite a bit about a lot of these diets that none of them are terribly accessible to poor people. Uh, paleo spends a lot of time talking about, oh, I you need to eat only fresh produce, go organic, which is its own level of bullshit. Sure, um, you have to you know you have to maximize your production, your consumption of real foods, which is great if you're middle class. But, you know, I spent a few years in a food desert. I I lived in Camden, New Jersey for a while, and I lived over a 7-Eleven. Like, my apartment was above a 7-Eleven, and a lot of people grocery shopped at the 7-Eleven because the closest grocery store was a 15-minute drive away the next town over, Mm. and it was a goddamn Wegmans. And if you've never shopped at Wegmans, Wegmans is like Whole Foods and Publix fucked and had a weird little flipper baby. (laughs) Oh, no. Yeah. You bring up a really fascinating point that I hadn't even stopped to consider about the the socio socio implications of eating right. Um, yeah. And I, I think there really is something to be said there. And, you know, it's not just it's not just the trendy diet. It's sometimes uh, whatever your situation is, you don't have the means to be picky about your food in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, that's exactly true. I mean, I remember being in high school and sitting here just like, okay, well, I happen to have a few extra bucks in my pocket. Maybe I can get two hot dogs from the 7-Eleven out back. But other than that, like, I'd go to rehearsals and I'd just buy a box of donuts for the week. That was my dinner for a week because I had a week of theater rehearsals. And I just kept a box of donuts in my car on Monday. And I just ate a couple of donuts each day and that was dinner. <laughs> Sure, um, sure. Yeah, cheap calories. Because um, yeah. at the end of the day, calories are what you need to survive. Right. Um, 
a very common dietary suggestion is count your calories, which if you're looking to do weight loss, okay, there's there's something there to that. Um, at the same time, it can be imperfect. I've known a few people who've gotten really obsessive. If you already have neuroses about how you eat, counting calories for a lot of people, it can be helpful for a lot of people. I've known people it's been very helpful for, but it's not an exact science. It never no. has been. And at the end of the day, the calories are what you need to survive. And the problem with a lot of these diet programs, a problem with a lot of traditional dieting advice in general, is that it, it kind of ignores the fact that the whole point, the whole reason why we have these food issues in general is, generally speaking, it's not because of a lack of willpower. It's, it's often because of a lack of available good food. It's also a lack of available good education about food. You know, uh, I have seen people treat potatoes like they are an acceptable, nutritious vegetable for every meal that they eat. Don't get me wrong. I love potatoes, but for God's sakes, get something green, get something yeah. red. Get away from the um, starch. Yeah. And the problem is I, I, there is this notion that if you... If you want to eat well, you have to follow one of these really strict, really difficult diet programs. And a lot of them will prey on people who lack the education or means or understanding that they need in order to succeed in whatever their fitness goals are. And some of their fitness goals are problematic to begin with because they're basing it off of, you know, how do I become a size two when size two varies from store to store yeah. When it's presented in as just an image of what you can achieve when a lot of people's bodies just aren't built for that. A lot of these diets will work for some people. They won't work for others. They're not sustainable. A lot of them will cause you to lose a whole bunch of weight in the short term. But as soon as you're off the diet, I remember in the late 90s, my parents got an eating plan from their doctor to try and help them lose a little weight. And there was this gross soup. <laughs> okay. It was this like green soup filled with these shitty vegetables. And like the recipe, don't get me wrong. My parents could cook fresh vegetables. They tried to every so often. But they but were the recipe, told to eat this. They were told to eat these like weird canned vegetables. It was like canned green beans and a little canned corn and all this stuff thrown into this gross-ass soup, and they were like, you can have as much of that soup as you want for nine days. And then guess what Guess what happened when they stopped eating that soup after nine days? They gained all the weight back. Exactly, and sometimes yeah. more. You know, and the idea that I want to reinforce is the idea that I hate these diets for not emphasizing, which is, Really, all you need are realistic, smart goals and the knowledge that eating healthy is pretty much just a matter of eating kind of more, some more plants. Sure. If you're inclined towards it, a little more meat or natural things and less of most other stuff. Yeah. And th I mean, that's, you talk about willpower. Um, I, I've seen the argument be in a comedic standpoint that you can either 
eat what tastes good or eat what's good for you, you know, and that's that that is an uneducated way of boiling down. I, I think the reason why most people choose if they have the choice to not because I can eat a box of Cheez-Its or I can eat a a fresh garden salad. I'm reaching for the Cheez-Its every time. Yeah. But on top of that, it's just the idea that, you know, you have to eat that salad or you are not properly following a good diet. And because you are not following a good diet, you are a piece of shit. This this notion that pervades. um, I know I started this talking about hating diets just because I hate the constrictiveness of them. I hate how constraining they are. I hate this this shame culture that exists around them you know i i'm a weightlifter weightlifters pretty weightlifters have a pretty close relationship with crossfitters and for a long time the prototypical crossfit diet was paleo plus dairy but god help you if you were a paleo person and you ate some beans because beans aren't paleo or if you ate a bag of chips or something like that, you know. And, and people come to me requesting diet advice. Like, I don't know why, but they come to me asking for diet advice. And I'm always just like, eat more plants, eat less bullshit, maybe have a cheat day once in a while, get a little progress, make changes you can sustain. Because the I think the key horrible prospect of diets is the notion that if I follow this program, whether it's a short-term program like maple syrup, lemon juice, cayenne pepper for 12 days or gross soup for nine days or Whole30 or paleo or veganism, like if I do this and I follow this exactly, I will succeed in losing weight, which is a very vague and dumb goal in and of itself because, again... Weight and health are not the same thing. They never have been. I'm healthier today at 212 than I was, like, several years ago when I was 175, way too skinny, smoking a whole lot, and just miserable, you know? Yeah, and, I mean, you want to get into what will most certainly wind up being a future hate on this podcast is the 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 judgmentalness of people and the 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 scrutiny and the the just plain old nastiness that you see on a day-to-day basis when it comes to people's appearance when it comes to people's weight when it comes to people's struggles in attempting to do the thing if the thing is um being healthier it's you know it's it's the 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 skinny blonde chick taking snapchat pictures and laughing at the fat guy on the treadmill fuck you that fat guy is on a treadmill he is trying to better himself you leave him alone Um, he might even be trying to better himself maybe he just fucking enjoys walking and this is a way he can enjoy walking yeah that's a very good point so i i think this mentality perverses itself into a lot of aspects of culture, and I think you've touched on one um, with mm-hmm. how people view diets. And you know, I do like I am not a healthy person by any means. <laughs> I'm gonna 
disclaim that. <laughs> but I love, I love just like I am not a now I am not a healthy person. Like you just you just said it like Winston Churchill saying that you will not be defeated. We will eat whatever we want. Um, That's yeah. That was that, that was wasn't Nixon. Winston Churchill. That, 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 that was, was Nixon. Yeah. It wasn't even Nixon. That was Futurama Nixon. <laughs> That's the only Nixon I know. What do you stupid voters want now? Um, uh, okay, my point. The, the point I was trying to get to. Um, I am not a health professional by any means. I am not a particularly healthy person. But even I can understand that it is a active lifestyle change. And that mm-hmm. there is not a quick fix there is not any amount of shakes i can drink there is not all all the subway sandwiches in the world exclusively for the rest of my life will not be the key to a healthier longer life yeah okay i think we just i think we just solved i think we just solved the uh health issues of the nation so very good I will, okay. uh, I will draft this proposal for the UN, and I will work on my Winston Churchill for when I address them. All right. Sounds good. All right. So uh, let's move into the third and final segment of the show today, and that is the um, relationship. Yes. And uh, as I alluded to in the intro, uh, the so the purpose of this segment is uh, we really wanted to have an advice portion in this podcast. Uh, I do want to add the disclaimer, neither Andy nor I are uh, professionals by any means in terms of relationship counseling, mental health, you know, uh, other than the fact that we have a whole lot of opinions we do want you to know we are unqualified to give any of this advice. However, we're going to give it anyway. Yeah. So, uh, and if we, you have relationship questions, send them to us. We hope this will be helpful. But okay. if it's not, we're going to do it anyway. Okay. You want to go ahead and uh, read it off, Andy? Yeah. So, um, this is what we got this week. Hey, love-hate relationship. I have a multi-person relationship question for you. Ooh. To start off... I am a cis female lesbian, and I have been with my wife for over 10 years, married for two. Yay! Yeah, right? Good for you. I can talk to her about anything, and we aren't afraid to get into uncomfortable conversations. Our relationship is unlike any other. I am 100% content and happy with our lives together. Now, I also have a best friend of the opposite sex that I have known for just as long who I am very close with. There is a level of emotional and physical intimacy I have always had with my best friend, which expresses our affection to each other through coffee dates, deep talks, cuddling on the couch, long hugs, or he'll place his arm around me when we walk around. But nothing beyond this, because he knows damn well that not only am I gay, but I am very loyal, all of which my spouse is very much aware of. We're all very close friends with another, so I'm not worried about my spouse secretly hating him. But my question is, should I feel bad about the level of closeness I have with my best friend, especially since he is a straight cis male and I am a uh, gay cis female? Should I start to lessen our affection uh, to avoid any muddiness in our relationship and focus solely on my spouse? And so she did preface, no one in particular has made uh, her feel like she should, other than society's expectations on how a marriage should work. 
even if my spouse is all right with it, should I change my relationship with my best friend? Hmm. So uh, when you do send in these questions, we, we advise and recommend that you give a little name. You can stay anonymous. You can call yourself whatever you want. Uh, but if you don't preface what we should call you, we're just going to come up with it on the spot. Sure. Um, let's see. Uh, what are we going to call this one? You know, I watched a bunch of watched a bunch of Dragon Ball Z clips the other day. <laughs> so, uh, how about Dragon Ball Z name? I mean, Dragon Ball Z plus lesbian eighteen. Eighteen. Okay. 18. <laughs> Terrific. Eighteen. All right. Eighteen. Um, Andy, would you like to begin, or shall I? Um, I'll, I'll go ahead just by saying that we're, we're going to give a, a longer answer, but short answer, no. I mean, if people are, if, if everyone is aware of everything that is going on and nobody seems to have a problem with it, I am very much against letting societal expectations dictate anything that anyone's going to do. And I am very much about, uh, physical affection and hippie free love shit. Uh, but go yeah. ahead, Alex. Give your two cents. No, no. I I think that sums things up pretty nicely. Um, something that something that'll probably come up. It certainly comes up with this question, and it'll probably come up with lots of questions we have in the past. Is that there is an obvious answer here? Uh, you you ask us the yes or no question of whether or not you should start lessening your affection to avoid muddiness. Um, yeah, and, and if you should change your relationship with your friend, you know, even though no one has communicated that there's any problem, even though your spouse hasn't communicated anything. So the yes and no answer to that question is, of course, you don't have to change anything at all if nobody has a problem with it. The deeper question that kind of underlies this is, I mean, I would ask you to kind of analyze what is it that's causing you to have these doubts in the first place? Because, um, if, yeah, if someone's externally being like, Ugh, you're married, you shouldn't be acting that way with such and such person, or you're a lesbian, you shouldn't be so affectionate with a guy, that makes it very clear that there's an external force that is resisting you as a person, and you need to find the best way to say fuck you to that. This question seems to be coming from some kind of internal shame, doubt, worry, and I, obviously, this makes you happy. This does not seem to hurt anyone else. You are deceiving no one, you know, in any relationship, and I don't care if you are two 70-year-old heterosexual cis people who've been married for 50 years or if you are you know a quintet of gender bending (laughs) reptile people from ripley's believe it or not i don't care what matters is what you all agree to what you all communicate about and what you all are comfortable with if your wife is coming to you to say I'm uncomfortable with this situation, here's why, you know, that's something to discuss. And out of respect for your wife's feelings, maybe you would lessen. Or maybe you and your wife have a conversation about that and she engages whatever is causing her to have these feelings 
Maybe you make temporary adjustments. But if all that's going on is you feel some weird societal expectation about what a marriage should look like, I would ask you, where are you getting your marital expectations? Yeah, that's a really great um, counter question to give them some to th- something to think about. Uh, I, I, I want to stress, because I agree wholeheartedly with your point, I, I think the... The gender doesn't matter so much. I think the orientation doesn't matter so much. It is about communication. It is about trust. It is about making sure that your happiness does not actively, aggressively infringe upon this other person you care about's happiness. You know, I I wouldn't care if this was... uh, a straight guy and his straight friend and the, and, and and a straight married guy and his best friend, because you want to talk about another thing that is going to be a hate is toxic masculinity. Um, Mm. I don't care if it is, you summed it up. I don't care if it's two gay girls. I don't care if it's two straight guys. The point is communication and the happiness of, the individuals and the collective. Um, So short answer, no, don't change. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you're, if you're wondering this, uh, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to say it. I'm going to say it. I'm going to say it. It's got to be said. Um, I have grown up with a pretty, like the majority of relationships I was exposed to in my life, and I'm sure this is true of you as well, Andy, and I'm sure it's true of 18 as well, are the heteronormative sitcom movie relationships, man, woman, traditional gender roles, etc., etc., etc. And sure. you've you've stepped out of that. And that is beautiful. And as I've grown older, as uh, as our society has changed, and, and let's be honest, for people in a situation like yours, uh, things are the best they have ever been. Uh, that's not to say they're good, quote-unquote, but they are the very best they have ever been. Uh, that said, if you're still internalizing that, that kind of shame and worry, uh, for some people... That comes from, you know, the TV they watch. For some people, it's the religion they were raised in. Um, I know a lot of people who come from very traditional backgrounds. Um, A lot of people I love, a lot of my own family, who can never think to step outside of, even if they think they're open-minded because they're willing to accept a lesbian married couple, they can't think of stepping outside of monogamy. They can't think of stepping outside of okay, you're monogamous, but you have other friends, but you don't touch those other friends. Like, that's that's marriage shit right there. Like, physical affection is purely a marriage thing. And, yeah. and you know what? Maybe it is for a certain couple. Again, that's the thing. There's no one-size-fits-all in this. There are couples that will be listening to this, and they're like, hey, I get almost all of my physical affect- affection from my partner. I'd, I'd say that that's... Probably true of me. I mean, most of the physical affection that I get in general, I don't like to touch a lot of people. The point is, I very happily am in a relationship like that. And I have no problem with that personally. I also have no problem with a relationship like yours. And I don't think you should either. You know, there's... And there's going to be people who live lifestyles and 
have day-to-day existences that if you were to live that, you would be miserable. Yeah. But you're living you're living a life you seem to enjoy. You have a great marriage. You have a great friendship. You're getting all the physical affection that you want. Nobody's upset at you about it. So I'd ask you to just sit into that, sit with that internal, with the source of that struggle, the source of that internal doubt, and really confront it. I think that's the emotional work for you. Yeah, it sounds like uh, there's some anxiety at play here, which at this day and age, I, I mean... There's lots of anxieties everywhere, but you've got it pretty good. And so what I would encourage you to do is uh, really focus on what is it that's making you anxious. If you need to uh, have the conversation with your spouse, with your best friend, maybe with both of them at the same time, it sounds like everyone here knows everything about what's going on so you could have a open conversation between the three of you like that if you need a reassurance seek out the reassurance um but you're not doing anything wrong and you don't need to feel bad about how you're living your life yeah no trust yourself because sounds like you're doing a lot better than a lot of other folks so enjoy it trust it and if yeah and you've got good people around you it sounds so feel free to get that extra reassurance from them a lot of people need verbal or tactile reinforcement like that and there's nothing wrong with asking for that you just need to be willing to ask for it yeah so thank you for your question 18 we really hope it helped um and thank you everybody for listening this has been our show this is love hate relationship Um, So just a reminder, if you have a relationship problem with a loved one, friend, co-worker, really any carbon-based life form that interacts with you, and uh, you want our advice, we are more than happy to talk through your problem and and try to help and give it, Uh, you can send your questions to lovehaterelationshippodcast at gmail.com, and we promise we will read them. You can also tweet us at LHRPod, that's L-H-R-P-O-D, with your questions, and follow us to keep up with new episodes. Absolutely. Uh, Again, I'm Andy Bowell, and you can follow me on Twitter at Jovocop2113. And I'm Alex Ruiz. You can follow me on both Twitter and Instagram at A underscore X underscore R-U-I-Z. Thanks for listening, everyone, and please, 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 please tell your enemies. Thank you.